All right, we've been in a, in a series on the book of John. We're in John 13 now. We're finishing up John 13. This has been an incredible chapter. We, we, we've gone over a lot of things, and, and I, want, I just want to review, you know, from the, the beginning of the chapter, we, and understanding we have the final teachings of Jesus. Jesus understands now. He understands now. This is it. This is it. And this 13 through 18, 13 through 7, right in that, that whole range there, is his final teachings to his disciples on the night before he dies. So this is, this is an incredibly powerful moment. I mean, you think about it. If Jesus, if, if what we have here is Jesus' last words to his disciples, in a sense, this, what, do you, what, what do people do in their last way? They, they want to impart something of great meaning, of great importance. And so we have the final teachings of Jesus. And what did he do? He started off by showing them this is how you serve. He washed feet. The lowest thing to do, he washed feet. And he says to them, now this is what's so interesting to me. It's not just this is how you serve. He says, this is leadership. This is what leaders do. And what is he saying? He's saying, I'm flipping the whole thing. The world tells you this, and I'm flipping it. Leaders serve. Leaders wash feet. Leaders stoop and get their hands dirty. And I want you to do that. If I can do it, you can do it. That's what he's telling them. That's what he's telling us. All right? And then he showed the importance of Scripture in his life. He mentioned he was fulfilling Scripture. This is a common theme throughout the life of Jesus. He's constantly fulfilling Scripture, fulfilling Scripture, because the Scriptures foretold this. I must do this. And then we looked a little further, and we saw how badly sin affects God and us. We see that, that, that uh, Jesus is grieved deeply. He's in anguish. And we looked into that word, that the. the the, the kind of the original meanings. The word has this idea of being torn apart. He's like, Judas, you are tearing me to pieces. You're killing me. And so Jesus shows love in the midst of this incredibly great pain, and he shows it by purposely loving Judas. He gives him the place of honor at the banquet. He does multiple things to honor him. He does multiple things to show him, I still love you. And then we looked into about this idea as we, as we looked further about how this changes us. How do these things change and how they change us? Where we find this purpose and meaning, this identity in Christ. And today we're going to talk about that even more. Because what happens is Christianity is all about this. It's all about suddenly you have a new identity. Suddenly your identity does not depend on your race or your gender, your class, your nation, your guild, your occupation, your status. You know, in most of the world back then, and even in a lot of much of the world today, your ethnic identity and your religion are tightly linked. And Christianity introduces this radical idea. There's this unity that crosses all lines. The idea that I am a Christian first and everything else is a distant second. And so I want to read this passage to you and then we're going to go over it in, in little clumps of verses. When, verse 31 of John 13. When he was gone, Jesus said, and he was gone, that's Judas. Judas just left. When he was gone, Jesus said, now, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, 
I will only be with you a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, or truly, truly. That's that important Greek phrase. Truly, truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And so we, we, we look at this and we see how Jesus is interacting. We see Peter, as he jumps in on this, we're talking about uh, at the very beginning too. It mentions the word glory five times, bam, 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 right in a row, emphasizing this aspect. And so I want you to see Christian identity is grounded in glory. That's, that's what it's grounded in. That's the basis. That's the foundation. But here's the thing. I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, if, if somebody came up to me just off the street, and they, and they asked me, started asking me things, and they said, well, well, what is glory? Define glory. That's a hard thing to define. What is glory? Because our world has an idea of what glory is, but that's not the idea, oftentimes, what Scripture is trying to get us. It's not adequate in expressing it. Glory can mean it's multiple things, and here's one. One, it can mean something incredibly valuable or of great worth. All right? It's so valuable that it affects you to your core. It's such great worth that it alters you. Um, in Matthew 13, we talk about, it, Jesus talked about the hidden treasure. He talked about the fine pearl. Uh, he, he said the worth of the treasure overshadowed the combined value of everything the man had. Right? The man goes out into a field. He finds this incredible treasure in this field. And so he buries it. He covers it back up. He goes, he sells everything he has, and it says, gladly, gladly. He sells everything he has so he can buy the field and get the treasure. Now, let me just say something real quick. Jesus is not giving us instructions on how to go about real estate acquisition. He's not saying this man just you know, he just snaked this guy out of a treasure. And he's not saying, I commend him. No, what is he trying to get us to see? He's trying to get us to see that the glory of the treasure was overwhelming. So that the man said, I have to have it. I will give up everything I own for it. Same thing with the story of the pearl. The most reasonable and sensible thing was to sell everything for it. To give up the lesser glory for a greater glory. And it's interesting because the, when you see this, the man, he, he realized the worth of the treasure. This, this is a process of rational thinking, right? We, we talk about this all the time. Faith in Christ is not irrational. It is rational. It's not only rational, but it is rational. It is thinking through, sifting through evidence, sifting through, through all these different things, and then saying, okay, I make this step of faith I give my life to him. And so this man realized the worth. He went through this rational, rational thinking. And then he gave up all he had. That's the step of faith. And he did it with joy. People, probably friends, family members, co-workers, said, are you crazy? 
You're going you're gonna to sell everything you have for a plot of land? Are you nuts? See, they would think that he's crazy. But actually, he was the sane one because he realized the worth of it and acted accordingly. It was the most sane thing to do. Glory, so glory is talked about as something is of great value, great worth. Glory is also talked about in other places as this idea of power, of, of majesty, of, of authority. This great power. It's the idea that is, is I guess the idea is that great glory means that we have to give it its proper place. We have to acknowledge it and submit to it. That's this idea of power, majesty. All right? We give it its, its proper place. We acknowledge it and submit to it. An illustration of this could be um, like an athlete. Say an athlete wants to pursue sports at a very high level, right? And so an, a, a, a man or a woman who does that, what do they do? That level of competition has a measure of control over their life, right? It determines what they do with their spare time. It determines what they do with their money. It determines what they do with their energy. To pursue that high goal means I have to allow that goal to shape my life. If I'm going to be that level of athlete, if I'm going to be that level of anything, if you want to be a great musician, it's going to exhibit a degree of control on your life. You have to submit your life to that glory. All right, so glory, we, we talk about it. It's something of valuable, great worth. We talk about it as something that has power and majesty and authority. Glory is also defined as a brilliance, a transcendence, like this incredible beauty that rocks you to your core. Kind of like Moses in the Old Testament when he came down from, came down from the mountain, he, 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 he glowed in such a way. They said, you got to cover your face. You're, 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 it's too much for us. The brilliance is too much for us. Or in Matthew 17, when Jesus is transfigured, what does it say? It says his face shone like the sun, and he was bright like the brightest white light. That's glory. That's what's going on there. So glory is infinitely valuable. It's infinitely beautiful, and it demands that we respond to it. That's what glory is. And in verse 31, we look at that, and we see When he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. In verse 31, especially that now, what does that mean? Well, Judas just left, and Jesus is saying, now is the time. Everything happens now. It's all happening right now. It gives gives them this idea that we're in, in this moment is an incredible moment, incredible moment of time. The die is cast, and you are going to see the glory. And the greatest manifestation of the glory of God is about to happen, the cross. The interplay here uh, in this, these next two verses, 31 and 32, uh, saying when the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, then God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. There's this interplay of glory going back and forth, back and forth. And, and this, this tells us something. The Father and the Son are glorifying each other. And the disciples are struggling with it, and we struggle with it too. They have no clue what he's saying, and at times this can be hard. Because, and the reason is because we, we have goofy ideas on what glory is. I don't know about you, but I remember um, 
I watched, yeah, I watched the wedding of Charles and Diane, uh, the royal wedding in, in London. And it was incredible. It wasn't, I know I'm dating myself like crazy now. Everybody's like, I don't know who they are. Um, you need to watch The Crown. Uh, <laughs> but I, and, and I'm watching this on TV and it's just unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. Just, you know, it's gold everywhere and jewels and blah, 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 like that. And uh, they're in the cathedral. And I remember that the guy, uh, the, the, the person who was talking at the time that it was being shown, the announcer or whatever you call that, an announcer at a wedding. I don't know what that exactly is. But he said, he said, the full glory of the monarchy is on display. See, you know, hindsight's 2020, but I keep thinking the glory of the monarchy? Diana and Charles, how'd that work out? And that, that sounds, I'm maybe even, I don't know if I, but I keep thinking, you know, who else was at that wedding? Camilla. How'd that work out? You know who else was at that wedding? Prince Andrew. How'd that work out? The full glory of the monarchy is on display. And it's because human glory is woefully inadequate. It's all about the outside. It's all about the show. You know, we see, and if you've watched some of these shows like The Crown and different ones like that, you see that just the dysfunction and the heartache and the misery that that family has endured, it's just sad. It's just sad. And yet, they're the most glorious. And that's because we, we, we are attracted to glitter. We're attracted to the showy stuff. We're attracted to gold. But that is not God's idea of glory. God's glory is shown on the cross. In verse 33, he says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is saying, I have to do this. I have to do it alone. I'm the only one who can do this. Now, you think about that, the cross. That's not what we would envision as a glorious end. You know, you think about what we would think about as a glorious end. I mean, I don't know what you think about. I think about maybe like, like, like saving Private Ryan. We're right to the very end. All these men have risked and many have lost their lives just for this one guy. And at the very end, the captain tells him, earn this, which to me is like the greatest guilt trip in the whole world, right? Can you imagine somebody telling you that? And he's kind of like, I didn't ask you to come. You know, this is not my idea and earn this. But that's a glorious, it's just like, oh, yes. And then he, uh, you know, Tom Hanks dies so well. He just, uh, just, he's a great actor, right? And so it's poignant, it's powerful, it's meaningful. We go, what a glorious ending. The cross is shameful. The cross is agonizing. The cross is designed to be humiliating. When a person is taken to the cross, they are stripped of all their clothes. They're beaten. They're mocked. One of the greatest abominations, for, multiple great abominations for a Jew, first of all, to be, Deuteronomy says, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree, who hangs on wood. Secondly, to be naked, to be stripped of your clothing, is such a shameful thing, especially to a Jew. To be mocked, total powerlessness, 
And then the Romans were always, I mean, they were, it's weird to say, they were good at this. They always put the crosses in a major place, a crossroads, a place where lots of people would come by and see and mock and gasp in horror. And so the cross is a shameful thing. It's not a glorious. And yet, in Scripture, we're told, no, this is glory. This is glory. Jesus on the cross, this is glory. The cross was the supreme moment of self-disclosure. God saying, here is who I truly am. Here is the essence of me. Everything about God is wrapped up in that moment. His wisdom is wrapped up in this moment because he has a plan. He has a plan to be just and to justify the unjust at the same time. His faithfulness is shown because he keeps his promise that the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. His holiness is shown because he required that his laws, his demands be satisfied. His lovingness is shown because he's provided a mediator, his son. His compassion has shown. His patience is shown. Over and over and over, you can go through these characteristics of God, and they're all reflected. They're shown at the cross. This is the essence of me. This is my glory. Christianity is the only religion in the world where God became killable. He became immortal. It's the only religion in the world where God needed courage. He gave up His glory to bring it to us. He gave up His strength to give strength to us. And when we make His glory at the center of our lives, that changes everything. God's glory means that He is worth everything. It also means that we have to change the way we look at suffering. The cross means we have to look at it differently. It is never wasted. And I say this because I know we have people here who have suffered. And God says it's never wasted. There's an eternal glory to it. There's a weight of glory in your suffering. So the Christian identity is grounded in glory. God's glory manifests itself in love. Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And so when you first look at this, one of the things that can can hit you is, how does this connect? It seems like Jesus is kind of hopping around here. Like, how does this connect to him talking about glory? Well, what you glory is what you pour your life into. What you glory is what you absolutely love the most. It's what captivates your heart. If you glorify money, you will never feel like you have enough. If you glorify beauty, you will never think you're good-looking enough. If you glorify success, you will never be satisfied. If you glorify intellect, you will always be afraid of being shown up, of looking dumb. And we can go on and on and on. Whatever it is, people glory. There's a whole bunch of different people here, and there's a whole bunch of different things that it would be easy for us to glory in. The point is, everyone glorifies something. Everyone worships something. We've talked about this in the past. Everyone worships something. As I have loved you, Jesus is saying here, he dies to give us life. As I have loved you, I die to give you life. As I have loved you, I thirst to satisfy your longing. As I have loved you, 
I go into the darkness to show you the light. As I have loved you, he gives us his glory by giving up his glory. To truly love someone is to glory in them. And what Jesus did through what he did on the cross and exhibiting his glory is he did something that the world needed desperately at that time and still does. He brought he brought the possibility of unity into a world that was in di- totally divided. In those days, people were divided between the learned and the unlearned. They were divided between slaves and masters. They were divided between barbarians and Greeks. They were divided between man and woman. Everything in that society, in the Roman society especially, was set up to keep people in their places so that everyone knew where they belonged and what was expected of them, right? And no one moved around. You stayed in your place for your life and the life of your children and your children's children just forever. Everyone's had their places, and that's where they stayed. That's why, if you read in in, uh, Ephesians, in Acts, when Paul goes into Ephesus, one of the charges they bring against him is he turns the world upside down. He makes slaves seem important. Slaves are loved, just like equestrians, just like senators, just like rich people. Okay, that's going to ruin our society. That was their charge. This man deserves to die because he's against our society. Why? Because he was following and acting out and loving the same way Jesus did. And so you have this world that was totally divided. And then this Jewish peasant wandered around about three years in a backwater country, and he gathered a ragtag band of followers, and he was crucified by Rome, and his followers deserted him. And then, I mean, you think about this. Within a generation, divisions were being healed all over the Roman Empire. With all these differences ingrained for lifetimes, suddenly people were sitting down at one table and they were believing, they believed that they were brothers and sisters in Christ regardless of their background. And it brought a unity that had never been seen before. Why? Because of this new command. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, why is this new? Because Jesus had told them about love before, the golden rule, do unto others, right? He told them what's important in the law, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. But this is new because he adds on there, love like I loved you. Because the trouble with loving your neighbor as yourself is that sometimes I'm not very good at at loving myself. Sometimes I don't like me. Sometimes I hate myself. But this, this is new. This is radical. Because it's not about emotion. It's not about feeling. It's not about liking someone. It's about sacrificing your glory for the glory of another. Sacrificing your comfort for the comfort of another. Now, if this is true, and if we're going to take this seriously, there's some hard truths we have to deal with here. One is this. Studies are showing, and we see this all around us, especially in our culture, that the world has a negative view towards Christianity, and people are turning away from Christianity. People have the wrong idea about what it means to be a Christian. And if that's true, and I believe it is, I mean, I think the evidence is pretty good, 
then what we need to do is take a hard look at ourselves. Because if loving each other is the ultimate sign of who a Christian is, and people have a lot of wacky ideas of what Christians are, we're blowing it on that. The quality of our relationships in church shows the reality of Jesus in our lives. We have to take this seriously. Loving each other is the ultimate sign. Now, there are times when it breaks through. There are times when people see it and people react to it. Remember uh, when Dylan Roof shot those, those church members at that church at a prayer meeting in South Carolina? And it just was stunning if you watched some of the, after the, at the trial, the, the impact statements that were being given by family members. And one after another, family members and church members got up and said, I forgive you. You took my husband, but I forgive you. You took my wife, but I forgive you. And it was, it was stunning. It was stunning. It's like supernatural. You feel like you're watching a miracle in real time. Remember the um, years ago, the Amish school shooting, where a troubled young man, Amish man, went into an Amish school and shot some small children. And the community gathered around the victim's families. And they gathered around the shooter's family. They supported all of them. They made meals. They helped them harvest their crops. I don't know if you saw this, but one family that lost a child made a meal and delivered it to the shooter's family. They said, you lost a child too. We're together in this. We forgive you. Don't drown in guilt. What an amazing thing that is. If you love one another, as I have loved you, Jesus says, the whole world will see it. The whole world will see it. And so that makes us stop and think. You know, I remember I made a note of this. I remember reading in a major newspaper, an op-ed writer, after the Dylan Roof shooting, and he said, all those people saying, I forgive you, he said, this is wrong. They're denying justice. It's a travesty. And then towards the end, he said, I really don't believe what they're saying. He couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it because it was too astounding. It was too astounding. It was too incredible. It was too supernatural. He couldn't see the greater power that was operating in that moment. So, if the world's taking taking Christianity, not taking it seriously and turning away from it, we need to look at ourselves. First, instead of blaming others, we need to stop and think, are we doing a good job of this? Secondly, you know, we all know this. Everybody knows this kind of intuitively, but when you love someone and when, when, you, when you sacrifice for someone, you know, it, it, it assures you. I mean, in a sense, you know, I love this person because I'm going to, these, to, the, to this length to do this for a person. And people that um, you would not know. I mean, you think about this here at this church. There's people in this church you would not know apart from this church. And when you serve them, when you love them, you're fulfilling this command. And what it is, is it's in a sense, it's almost a reassurance to you. Yes, this is what we're supposed to do. This is how it looks. And it's interesting to me, you know, I, I have a unique um, viewpoint in, in all of this being the pastor, but sometimes as people go through things here at this church, seeing other people reach out and serve and love 
and comfort and, and help. And oftentimes, without a, nobody knows about it. It just, it just happens organically. It reassures us, this is, we're, this is what we're, we're doing it. This is what we need to do. So first point, we, it challenges us, are we really doing it? Second point is, is when you do it, you realize, yes, we are. Yes, we are. This is what Jesus wants. The last thing I want to say, because this was brought up to me sometime, somebody a while back, they're saying this seems kind of narrow. Love one another in the church. What about the rest of the world? We're just looking out for each other, like one more, one more little click. And I, and I thought, not really. Because we already know we're supposed to love the world. We already know that. We already know love one another. Jesus has already told us that. But if we start here, it spills out into all aspects of our lives. And the whole world sees it and is affected by it. So it ends up reaching out everywhere. It ends up reaching out everywhere. How does that work, Bob? Well, I'll tell you how it works. There are Ukrainian refugees right now in Bulgaria, in France, in Germany, and other places that have been served by missionaries some of whom we support, Phil and Angela Flowers. And we are loving them, and they are loving others. It's spilling out. It's spilling out. And I mean, even, even for me personally, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say, there are people here. You have loved me. You have loved my family in powerful ways. Some of you have challenged me. Some of you have challenged my beliefs. Some of you have broadened my thinking. And I have changed. I've changed. I've I've changed socially, biblically, culturally, racially. There's been changes in my life because there are people here who love me enough to support me and also to confront me and to critique and to love. And that's how it works. That's how it works. All right. Third point, this would be a good time if you want to go get your child. And I know now to step on the gas and less hustle. All right? So Christian, Christian identity is grounded in the glory. God's glory manifests of love. Peter failure. All right? Verse 36. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. We delve into this. We'll get into this in greater detail. Coming up is the actual passage where this happens, and then later comes up the actual passage where Jesus brings this incredible healing and forgiveness into Peter's life. So we'll get into it in more detail then. But here, what's interesting to me is Jesus is talking about glory. He's talking about love. And Peter just goes, yeah, love, right, right, fine. I know that's really good, but where are you going? Like Peter's like, dude, are you paying attention here? And, and, and Peter, you know, this famous, he declares his steadfast commitments to Jesus. You can kind of see his pride kick in and go, oh, no, not me. I'm going to be with you to the very end. And what do we see here? We see Peter's overconfident. I mean, there's a lot of things you can see here, but this is one of them. Peter's overconfident. In a few hours, he's going to deny Christ three times, and he didn't even know the kind of person he was that he could do that. All of us, deep down inside, have a capacity for dishonesty and cruelty and cowardice. And oftentimes, we don't recognize what a capacity we have. 
Peter didn't. In Gethsemane, Jesus said, you need to pray, Peter, because you're about to enter into temptation. A test is coming, and you're not ready. And what does Peter do? He falls asleep. Why? Because he doesn't think he has a problem. He thinks he can handle this. And so there's something here. God is, God is convicting me of this. And I've realized, I've mentioned this before, misery loves company. So I'm a teacher. So I'm just going to unload on you because I want you to be miserable and convicted also so that we're all into this together. That's how much I love you, right? All right. This is... Uh, when, I'm trying to think how when we don't pray, it is overconfidence because we think we can handle whatever we're going through at the time. And so to me and to you, Jesus is kind of saying, there's a test coming. Are you ready? And this is a powerful thing because I think about how often I don't pray about things. I think about how often things happen in my life uh, a couple of weeks ago, my car broke down, and I said, I think I can figure this out. I think I can figure this out. I think I can handle this. And, you know, and I was doing a couple of things, and it wasn't exactly going the way I thought it was going. And all of a sudden, it occurred to me, maybe I ought to ask God for help. Why? Because my first thought was, I can handle it. When we don't pray, it's because we think we can handle it. We think we're ready. And so on multiple occasions, Peter shows this kind of an attitude. In Matthew 26, Jesus tells them they will all desert them. And Peter says right in front of the rest of them, I won't, even if all these others leave. Loser, 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 loser. If they leave, I'm not, Jesus. I'm your man. I'm with you, right? And Jesus, Jesus is like, no, you're not. No, you're not. When Jesus is washing feet, what does Peter say, right? Jesus has washed all these feet. He comes up to Peter. Peter says, you're not washing my feet. You're not washing my feet. I am not going to subject you to that indignity like loser, 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 loser did. You will not wash my feet. Why? Because he knows best. And I think there's something here. He's not just overconfident. I think that what's going on here is he believes he's, it's almost like he believes he's the best disciple. I'm the good one. These guys, <laughs> women's, but, except Judas, he seems to be okay. That's probably what Peter was thinking, right? right? He thinks he knows better. He thinks he's doing it better. He's saying, look how faithful I am, Jesus. Look how faithful I am, Jesus. That's why, you know, it's, we talk about some of the things Peter says. He felt like he was the one that could correct Jesus. Lord, may it never be. Multiple times. In fact, at the Mount of Transfiguration, he starts talking and God the Father has to interrupt him and say, this is my beloved son, shut up. Actually, it says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. But you know what that means. Shut up, Peter. What you're saying is ridiculous because he felt like he knows. He's the best. He can do this. And so he's correcting Jesus. And even here, and see if your identity He's, I'm the brave one. And if your identity is that you're brave, you cannot see the cowardice in your heart. If your identity is anything but Jesus, you are blind to your shortcomings. And that lack of self-awareness leads to being aggressive in disagreements. 
When Jesus is your identity, this is so key. When Jesus is your identity, you are not threatened by opponents because your standing in Christ is not based on your performance. It's not based on how good I am at this stuff. It's not based on how good of a disciple I am. My standing in Christ is not based on that. And so if someone says, Bob, I, you did something the other day that's a terrible thing. And I think, oh, what did I do the other day? Well, I did that and that. And that. Which one? I said, oh, well, you, you said this to somebody. I was like, oh, that was the least. <laughs> yes, there's two others that you really hate me for. Right? I mean, it's just like it, it, this. You're not threatened. Why? Because my standing is not based on my performance. Your standing as a follower of Jesus Christ is not based on your performance. And so now... We have Peter. He's going to deny. Now, we, we know the story. We have this 20-20 hindsight because we've read it. We know the denial. We know the, the healing that's coming. But we get hints of it. In verse 36, he says, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. I'm going to die on a cross, Peter. You can't follow me there now, but you will later. You're going to come through later. I have hope for you. And then it's just finally, he says, will you really lay down your life for me? Will you really die for me, Peter? Do you think that's going to save the day? Do you think that's what would be needed? You dying for me. He goes, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die for the whole world. And Jesus makes no doubt. He says, I'm, I'm going to emphasize it to you. Truly, truly, that, that, that uh, emphasis in the Greek, this is, this is powerful. This is important. Listen to me. You're going to deny me three times. Because the first step in forgiveness is realizing the enormity of my sin. And Jesus makes no doubt here. But the healing is coming. The forgiveness is coming. We will see this later on. We'll see in John 21 when Jesus lovingly but firmly leads Peter to repentance and calls him back to ministry. And so we see the glory of God and how that can change us. We see the importance of loving each other and how it can change the world. And then we see the failure of Peter. And in there, we see a warning for us to heed especially to me, a warning about prayerlessness. When I don't pray, I believe I've got it under control. And that is a terrible place to be as a Christian. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you, Lord, you loved. You loved Judas right to the end, and you loved Peter, and he turned and became this incredible witness and power for you. And so, Father, we pray that... um, we would take these things to heart, that we would begin to wrestle with them and think them through and see the implications for our lives, make changes where we need to, Lord, and also just to be able to rest in you and to allow your glory to be a part of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are going to ask parents to come forward. Um, I had somebody ask me, and we're going to line up right here down front. I had somebody ask me, do you hold each baby individually? And I, I told them, I said, well, here's the deal. When I was a kid, I played a lot of football. And my problem was I fumbled a lot. So I don't feel like probably this is the best thing for me to do. So what we're going to do is we have a microphone, which all parents love. And we're going to have each, we're just going to go down the line. Parents introduce themselves and their children. And then we will uh, have the, this uh, time of dedication. So come on up, everybody. Right in there, that's great.
All right, we're just going to start down here. Amazing how quiet they are. This is a miracle. Hey, hey my name's Jared. This is my wife, Lily. This is Sophia Pearl, but she goes by Pearly. And this is Benny. Hey, my name's Brett. This is my wife, Trish. And our daughter, Margaret Hannah, she, she goes by May. Hey, my name is Will. This is my wife, Elizabeth, and our daughter, Nora Hayes. I'm Stephen. This is Mason, Oliver, Ollie, and Caitlin, my wife, obviously. Good morning, church. I'm Jeff McNeil. This is my wife, Heather McNeil. This is Cora Jane. She's being dedicated today. And our son, Maverick, Vincent McNeil. I'm Ben Tiefenbeck. This is my wife, Christina, and our daughter, Sophie Victory. Hi, I'm Mary. This is my husband, Brian, um, and this is our baby girl, Amelie. Hey, guys. Uh, this is Eric and Kristen, and we have Elijah and Levi. Hi, my name is George. This is Benjamin and Patricia. You know, as believers, we're called... I, called to recognize this, that children are a gift first and foremost from God, and God in His goodness gives children to parents. And that's not only because they have an awesome responsibility for caring for the gift, but also this privilege of enjoying the gift. And because children belong to God and are given by grace as gifts to parents, it's only proper and appropriate that children are dedicated back to God. And so parents, I'm going to call your attention to the commands of God in the Bible. Deuteronomy 6 4 through 7 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk to them about it when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Ephesians 6 4 instructs parents not to provoke your children to wrath. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So God's instructions are plain. So parents, I'm going to get you to respond here. I want you to know you're to love God. You're to teach your child to do the same. As you love God and as you love one another and others, you will model before your child a wonderful love that God will want for himself. So having come freely, I ask now that you enter into the following commitment in the presence of God and his people. Do you parents vow by God's help and in partnership with the church to provide a Christian home of love and peace? to raise your child in the truth of our Lord's instruction and discipline, and to encourage your child to one day trust Jesus Christ as his or her Savior. Great. We didn't practice. So when I said, do you, some said yes. Somebody said amen. Okay. Modeling this kind of love cannot be done alone. It requires the help of others. For this reason, and many are here, Parents call upon the help of their family. So family, you are a part of this. And finally, to the whole church, there's a do you in this whole thing. Because I want you as, as believers in the body of Christ, we have a responsibility to teach the gospel story to our younger generation. In fact, the Old Testament prophet Joel commands us to teach your children, your children's children, and on to the next generation. And so now to this congregation, as a part of this fellowship, do you promise to model the love of Christ, to teach the word of God, and to encourage these parents and these children along the way? Amen. All right, let's pray.
and quickly. <laughs> Things are going downhill fast. No, I had five kids. This is, this is wonderful to me. Father, we come before you, Lord. We come before you this sacred time, this great time, this joyous time. We celebrate, and yet solemnly we declare before you, Lord, we want to be involved in the lives of these children. We pray for these parents that you would help them minister, love, exhort, and encourage their children to point them in godly directions. We pray for these children. The potential that stands before us is staggering, Lord, staggering for your kingdom. And so, God, we pray that you would work in their lives in mighty and powerful ways, raise up men and women of God through these children. And, Lord, we will stand back and be amazed at what you will do. We give you the praise and the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.